tensions have reached new heights in the Taiwan Strait. In both military posturing and rhetoric, the U.S. and China have escalated confrontations over the small island state. Certainly, the region is no stranger to uncertainty, with periodic escalations throughout the decades. But when situated against the backdrop of spiraling rhetoric between the U.S. and China, these recent developments are especially concerning. What are the conditions on either side of the strait, and what lasting effects could they have? From the School of Diplomacy at Seton Hall University, this is the Global Current. I'm your host, Eric Butts. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students covering the situation in Taiwan. Is Christian McGuire? Hey, Christian. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And focusing on international reactions and events is Drew Starbuck. Hey, Drew. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on. <laughs> okay, Christian. Let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of the, the background of this conflict with Taiwan? Why is it separate from China, and why don't they get along? Definitely. So this separation really has its origins in the Chinese Civil War. This conflict dates back to the 1940s when Mao's communist forces took over mainland China and the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. Now the People's Republic of China that was established in 1949 has never ruled over Taiwan, but it does regard it as a breakaway province. So they view it as、uh, part of China, but Taiwan views itself separately. Yes, it views itself as distinct. It views itself as a sovereign state, and this is the main cause of conflict between the two. Okay, and and is it over the the decades that it's been separated? However, like what eight decades, seven decades now, has it developed differently than than China? China is certainly a bigger global superpower than Taiwan is, but Taiwan has carved out a niche in the global economy. Culturally, there are some distinctions.、Mm-hmm. They share a lot of values, ethnically. Taiwan and China are both majority Han. However, when it comes to self-identification, most of the people in Taiwan identify as solely Taiwanese. Solely Taiwanese. Han Chinese being like the the classic ethnic group in China. But it's interesting that that over this time there has developed some differences, especially because one of these countries is under communist rule, at least nominally, and one of them is under democratic, democratic rule. rule. Okay.、Correct. So. How does the let's go to you now, Drew? How does the rest of the world view Taiwan? Because I understand it, or at least in the past, because I understand that it's a very interesting, like they exist, they don't relationship. So, I think to clarify the background of how the rest of the world views Taiwan and China, it also ties back into the history, as Christian said.、Mm-hmm. You'll hear people speak of the One China principle, which recognizes that the People's Republic of China views Taiwan, as Kristen said, as a breakaway province. And technically, Taiwan or the leadership within Taiwan recognizes both that there is one China. However, the two the two sides of the debate have very different perceptions about what this means.、Mm-hmm. The People's Republic of China says that the Taiwan is a breakaway province that will eventually reunify with the mainland, whereas Taiwan. Has not fully declared their independence, but they practically operate as a self-independent form of government, and so the rest of the world recognizes the One China principle for the most part,、mm-hmm. as they are also wary of both China's diplomatic pressure and economic influence. And also, it's important to note that in this history, when the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan, Taiwan was not a democratic、mm-hmm. state. 
they were a national state that gradually transitioned to a democracy. It's only when the United States recognized the PRC, or the People's Republic of China, that they switched the recognition of the official Chinese government in Taiwan, known as the ROC, to the PRC. But that's interesting, though. It, it's, it's, it's quite bizarre, because the U.S., along with most countries in the world, recognize the one China principle. There is only one China, and yet they can still support Taiwan. Can you, like, let's take the U.S. as an example. How has their relationship been with Taiwan in the past? So the bedrock of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan is, con- is kind of the Taiwan Relations Act specifically, whereas the United States has promised to aid Taiwan in a time of need, but also they do not recognize them officially. They provide lots of military aid, economic relationships, closer ties with them, and they have promised to support them in case of a serious threat mm-hmm. to Taiwan and its people. However, this has stopped short of official recognition. So the, the United States, more than any other nation in the world, has played this dangerous game of doing, basically conducting relationships with Taiwan as if they are a fully independent state, mm-hmm. but stopping just short of recognizing them as such. Yeah. And so the United States, it's interesting to note, as in when we talk about tensions between China and the United States and a possible outbreak of conflict between those two, it's all centered around Taiwan. Much of the U.S. war games that I think we'll speak on later are centered about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and if the United States came to that aid. So they they simultaneously, or at least the U.S. simultaneously, conducts almost all the hallmarks of state relations with Taiwan, but it's not officially recognized. You know, they'll have a building in the U.S. that does everything an embassy does, it's just not called an embassy. So it's just it's a very interesting topic and, and interesting relationship. All right, so let's turn back now to the more recent developments that have made this story newsworthy. And there's a bunch of things that's been going on. Kristen, let me start with you. Can you talk about some of these increased, some of these Taiwanese comments that helped trigger this? Sure. So this really started in early October where... China's People's Liberation Army sent 150 warplanes in the first five days of October alone that entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Mm -hmm. And China has been rapidly stepping up their military aggression in regards to Taiwan, and these incursions have sometimes even crossed the median line of the Taiwan Strait, which is the unofficial maritime border between mainland China and Taiwan. And so, so in response to this, President Tsai has called for reconciliation between China and Taiwan Mm -hmm. and calls for peaceful talks between the two. However, simultaneously, Taiwan has continued to step up its military readiness in regards to a possible Chinese invasion. Recently, Taiwan's defense ministry warned about Taiwanese countermeasures for China. Um, And he warned that a full-scale invasion by China of Taiwan would be possible by 2025. So so it seems like this started spiral, this recent spiral of, of tensions. Did this start with the move by China with these, these military exercises? There have been some residual tensions, obviously dating back to the Chinese Civil War, but the tensions have really amped up yeah. in recent times. Yeah, so that, I mean, of course, we should note that this is not a new conflict. Obviously, no, it goes back seven, eight decades. And there's been spirals of tensions before. Um, at one point, they put an aircraft carrier in the Taiwanese Strait. I think that was back in the 90s. And they and it's not a new thing to see tensions, but this 
level of, of tension is, is something we haven't seen in a while, for sure. Let's stick with Taiwan for a sec. They they called for reconciliation with China. Like, what, what was their incentive to do that? So, again, as a response to what happened in early October, Xi Jinping gave a speech where he talked about, you know, increased cooperation between China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And President Tsai kind of echoed these sentiments. Okay. And called for talks between the two nations. However, China did not respond well. Uh, Xi Jinping has historically talked about peace between the two. However, he continues to amp up military aggression. And in response to President Tsai's call for increased dialogue between the two, China released a military propaganda video. Again, just this seems to be people are saying one thing, but the reality is very different. Yeah, words and actions are Absolutely. contradicting completely. Absolutely. Okay, so having talked about some of these, the, the Chinese actions and some of the Taiwanese response to this story, there's also a, a U.S. component to these recent uh, tensions. Can you talk a little more about that, Drew? Yeah, of course. Um, so part of the large reason that there has been uh, a ramp up in tensions between the United States and China is President Biden's recent remarks on Taiwan itself in which he broke from the benchmark of the relationship between the United States and Taiwan as I said earlier, mm-hmm. the Taiwan Relations Act when he vowed as a guarantee to protect Taiwan in case of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Most experts expect that the United States would step in and help thwart an invasion however that is not an implicit guarantee in mm-hmm. the Taiwan Relations Act which, of course, caused tensions with China to ramp up in the increase of amphibious landing drills by the Chinese army. Uh-huh. Of course, China has also continued to build up its military forces. It has the largest navy in the world right now. And also, this may contribute into the fact that the United States has also been worried about the PRC testing a new hypersonic nuclear missile as well, yeah. which could play a part in the ramping up of tensions between the United States and China. And also, I think it's important to note President Biden himself and the United States recently. President Trump also took to China as a competitor, as an enemy even so, to compete with. However, he did in a very different fashion to now current President Biden. Former President Trump went often at the action unilaterally, starting trade wars and sanction escalation with the Chinese government. However, President Biden is much more multilateral in his approach to compete with China. The quadrilateral security dialogue, AUKUS, Uh the new trilateral security pact between the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, and even his framing of his domestic agenda, the reconciliation package in Congress, he said this is a way to ensure that the United States economy remains competitive with China into the future. So President Biden is very aware of the tension of the growing era of competition between China and the United States. We're returning to an era of great power competition. And at the center of this is Taiwan. So whether he meant to say that or not, what he said is probably true, and that is just going to keep up ramping up the tensions. Yeah, and you've situated this story within the much larger story of increasing tensions between U.S. and and China, going back to the Trump administration. That's fair to say that there's just been a ramp up in, in recent, in the past few years? Yes, there has been. And it's not just a recognition on the United States side, it's a recognition mm-hmm. on the Chinese side that 
they're also trying to be much more proactive about their claims, whether that be mm -hmm. the island hopping and island building in the East and South China yeah. Seas, spreading their territorial claims, flexing their economic strength through the yeah. Belt and Road Initiative. All of these different things, including their sending of airplanes into Taiwan's air defense zone. Yeah, recently. It's, it's yeah. all about China flexing its newly muscle. And Taiwan is at the center of that because they China has made its goal of reunifying the breakaway province of Taiwan with the mainland a key yeah. national priority. That's interesting. I mean how I mean how credible is that threat? If they're saying if Xi Jinping is saying it is a key priority uh, for me to reunify with Taiwan does that mean, is that like a peaceful threat? Like we want to reunify peaceful? Or is there a threat of, of military action? Because we've seen our words and actions are different, like Christian said. Because we've seen amphibious landing drills. That doesn't sound very peaceful. What, what, what is, how credible is, is China's threat? And I think that's where we get into the interesting part, Eric. In a speech on October 9th, according to the national interest, pre Chinese President Xi Jinping stated that China prioritizes peaceful reunification with Taiwan. He did not completely rule out the possible use of military force to unify Taiwan with the mainland unilaterally, but this was a departure from his remarks in July where he vowed to smash any attempts at formal independence of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So he has gone back and forth between these two priorities. It's also China has also played the long game to a certain extent of cutting diplomatic relationships, the few that Taiwan has as yeah with the rest of the nations of the world and stepping up economic pressure because Taiwan yeah. and China are still very close economic partners. Yeah. So China, Xi Jinping, has options in front of him of where he can play the long game of peaceful reunification with yeah. Taiwan, which seems unlikely to a certain extent with how the nations are set up now, or forceful reunification, which is also a very difficult path. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I want to ask... What does what does China get from being so uh, aggressive recently? At least in, in in their actions, is it a play? A lot of times you see, at least in democracies, we see play to a domestic base. Putin does something aggressive in Eastern Europe, and there's an increase in support back home in Russia. Do we see something like that, or are there other interests at stake in in this conflict with with China? I think I can go into that a little bit, just because. It's important to note the Chinese government is controlled by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. And in a large part, it is a very much propaganda-driven government of where they set national priorities and they go set out to fulfill them. And they have a massive population. Sure. And the goal of the CCP, as long as they stay on power, is that the economy has to keep growing, they have to keep their people fed. But also, on that type of when a government like that runs on propaganda and propping themselves up, you have to be seen as carrying out the priorities you set for yourself. Yeah. And because the Chinese government has said for so long that Taiwan is a part of China, to back down upon that would be seen as a massive blow to their credibility. Yeah. You can just take, for instance, the United States, for example, when President Biden withdrew from Afghanistan earlier this yeah. year. Many regarded that as a move that President Biden regarded that as a logical move that we had achieved our goal in Afghanistan. However, we failed in our attempts to set up a government that quickly collapsed in the aftermath of our evacuation. And the United States took a credibility hit, and China and Russia seized on that and attacked us as being unwilling to stay for our commitments. If it's the same principle applies with China. If China says now we don't want to reunify with Taiwan, their credibility takes that same hit. 
Yeah. So they're not likely to back down. Go ahead, Christine. I think also, just to build off what Drew has said in the past, that a lot of what China is doing with Taiwan centers around this great power conflict between the United States and China. And I think it's worthy to note, given President Biden's comments in the CNN town hall, which was a step away from the strategic ambiguity strategy that the United States has had for a long time now, even though Biden's press secretary walked those comments back, President Tsai of Taiwan has still demonstrated that she counts on U.S. support. She has said that Biden's commitment to Taiwan is very strong and that it's also worthy to note that Taiwan receives a lot of military defensive aid from the United States. Including recently. I mean, it was a new arms deal. Correct. In August, Biden proposed a $750 million arms deal for Mm -hmm. Taiwan. This was a continuation of how Trump conducted relations with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. He spent a lot of military technology and money and arms to Taiwan as well. So this is a continuation of the conflict between China and the United States using Taiwan almost as a, not necessarily a proxy, but certainly using it as leverage. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. We've talked a lot about, you know, China's role and the U.S.'s role, but I feel like not enough people ask, what what does Taiwan want? In all of this? I think that Taiwan, as we've said before, views itself as separate, as sovereign from mm-hmm. mainland China. And so I believe that they want to maintain their independence from mainland China while also pacifying the tensions between the two, because China obviously poses a very serious threat yeah. to Taiwan's security. Sure. It's why Taiwan's defense minister has warned this month about China's possibility of a full-scale invasion by 2025 and how there have been calls for Taiwan to remain combat-ready. They realize that this is an existential threat to their existence. And so I believe that the calls for reconciliation are not necessarily to reunify with mainland China, but simply so that they can maintain their independence without the threat of China lurking over them. And if I can just build off of Kristen's point there. Go ahead. Most opinion polls taken when the Taiwan has, when the question has been posed to the citizens of Taiwan of what they should do about their status, very few favor formal independence from China. Mm. And even fewer favor reunification with Pence. The vast majority, about 90% and maybe even more, favor the status quo. They are self-independent in all but name, yeah. and they are living about their lives in a very vibrant democracy i mean this is a de- <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is a democracy that is the world's main producer and supplier of semiconductors they have a very prominent role in the global economy despite their smaller stature and the democracy people are encouraged to vote and they're a little bit crazy i can't say there's fights that have broken out within their congress that's a, not an uncommon yeah. occurrence uh I think Taiwan is very satisfied its citizens with the status they are in, and they remain to a certain point unconcerned about the Chinese prospects of invasion. However, they do not want to exasperate tensions unnecessarily. So it seems like right now Taiwan's interests remain in, in maintaining the status quo. They're not looking, they're not actively being activists or, or advocating for countries to recognize them because that would that would actually set up or unbalance the status quo. They're just looking for stability, stability which their economy thrives in. And I actually want to talk about the economy a bit because that's 
that's an important part of this story. You mentioned Taiwan has a vibrant economy. Is that, I mean, that would factor into any decision to increase tensions more, wouldn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, it's such a big economy, and China is too, and the inter- economies are so interdependent. What, what, what advantage could you have from getting too aggressive when it could mess up the economics? And that's another thing that I don't think, Eric, that people account for when we're talking about the prospects of Chinese tensions with Taiwan and escalating mm-hmm. is the the effect on a, the global economy. As I said before, Taiwan is the world's main producer and supplier of semiconductors to the world. Mm-hmm. Any conflict when the Chinese attempt to invade Taiwan would freeze certain markets. We have already seen how semiconductor shortages have forced certain Japanese car companies to halt production of their new lines. Yeah. And any type of conflict would just make that shortage grow very severe. And also, investors as well within the market. Elliot Hintov, who's the head of global macro policy research at the State Street Global Analysis, says the challenge for investors in this type of scenario would be ascertaining where the risks are not properly priced. Yeah. The market, because take into account uh, Taiwan's special niche within the global economy, and then if this conflict arises, you have China, the world's second largest economy and fastest growing, and then possibly the United States, the world's largest economy, stepping yeah. in, and both pouring into a region in which there is a lot of trade and imports and exports going in and out and maritime interests. Yeah. It's a disaster waiting to happen for the global economy if yeah. conflict breaks out right there. And that that's a strike against any sort of conflict breaking out because, I mean... What does China gain? They gain a rhetorical victory. They gain their, their they win their policy of one China. But what they lose is stability in the economy. They lose so much in the economy. Christian, you want to speak? I agree. Just to add on, just a small point to that. Drew has obviously talked about the effects that China would feel yeah. as a result of these tensions growing yeah. even more. But Taiwan would also have very heavy repercussions on uh, their economy. Of course, yeah. China is their largest trading partner, and so to disrupt the status quo, either by seeking some sort of international recognition, which has been, as Drew pointed out, pushed against from members within the Taiwanese government, mm-hmm. that would largely affect their economy again. I mentioned earlier that they carved out this very specific niche, specifically in the growing information and technology sector of the economy with the semiconductor production. And so to take that hit to their economy, not only on the global scale, but just China retaliating towards them would be horrific. Yeah, yeah. And then I I just want to expand the story slightly because we've talked about the three main actors here. We've talked about the U.S., Taiwan, and, and, and China a lot. Are there any other actors that have a role in the region? I would also just say that it's not certain and there's also allies of the United States. Japan plays a certain to extent, even though Japan's relationship with Taiwan has not been the most stable. But also the most important one that's an unknown fact at the moment is Russia mm. within the region. Because Russia has taken an increasing interest in Taiwan recently. Alexei Maslov, who's a professor, one of the leading Chinese experts within Russia, states yeah. that the Chinese goal... True. He does not believe the Chinese are attempting reunification at the moment. They're going to play the long game. But also, Russia's interest is supporting China. Yeah. Is saying that they support Chinese reunification, that they believe in the one China principle, that Taiwan should become a part of the Chinese government. However, Russia has no interest in supporting any Chinese 
forceful military action against Taiwan. Sure. They think that is a red line. Russia is more interested that if they back China up on this, if there's another territorial problem where something of increasing importance for Russia comes up, that China will support them on that. Say, Ukraine or Georgia or these separate conflicts where Russia has expanded their territorial ambitions. They they believe that if they have China's back here, China will have their back. And also, I think it's important to note that we don't talk about the cost of Taiwan and things. In a hypothetical scenario where the Chinese invade Taiwan, they have to contend with invading and conquering an island of 24 million people, most of which Mm -hmm. are very, will resist their rule. Mm -hmm. And in the focus of the United States war games, especially by the U.S. Air Force in particular the last few years, has been on a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Can the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy thwart that invasion? Yeah. Is the U.S. Uh, commitment credible? According to the defense news of the latest war games of this past year, the United States was able to, the, the scenario of the war games took place in 2030. Yeah. The United States was able to thwart the invasion barely with mm-hmm. a massive loss of life. It was a period victory. Yeah. However, the U.S. Air Force was relying on advanced technology, yeah. cargo munitions planes using drones as sensing grids. Sure and new generation fighter jets. Stuff they don't have yet. (laughs) Stuff they don't... So it's safe to say that probably any military invasion or conflict is a toss-up. It could go either way. Okay. We don't have much time left, but I want to just like summarize everything real briefly. We see a lot of increasing tension right now. We see Chinese incursions. We see fiery rhetoric and fiery action. But we also see a lot of consistent institutional pressure to maintain the status quo. It's what most Taiwanese people want. It's in what's the best economic interest. So taking all that information, uh, one last question for both of you. Is this frozen conflict, is it likely to turn hot or any soon? Or is this just one in another line of escalations here? You want to start, Kristen? Sure, I can start off. I think that as of right now, I don't see the tension turning hot, I would say, within the next one to ten years, but I would say once we get into the ten to fifteen year range, Mm -hmm. I think that there's a great possibility that this conflict will turn hot. That the increasing tensions, Mm -hmm. there's only so much that dialogue can do to calm it, and that eventually this will turn into a very hot conflict. So in the longer term, there's more of a chance of conflict? Definitely. In the short term, I don't think it will be, but in the long term, yes. Andrew, final word? And I just, I I agree with Kristen to a certain extent. I like to think of it as like peaking things. Like if you look at a graph of the economy and it's peaking. (laughs) Yeah. There's, this is just a peak that Mm -hmm. hand things, but you're gradually seeing more and more peaks building up and building up. And when you finally hit that red line, that's when tension will spike over. I think in the very short term, I think it's unlikely. Uh, President Xi and China still seem to be favoring their playing the long game. Yeah. But I think it's necessary that we keep bringing this issue up over and over again more yeah. and more recently. Deserves the attention. I think yeah. it's going to reach a breaking point eventually, probably within the f- next 5 to 10, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And what will happen at that moment is anybody's guess. Okay. Well, that's all we have time for today. This has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, Christian, Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Christopher Benitez Cuartes. Hey, Chris. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So what are you keeping an eye on this week? So our first story this week comes out of Japan as Prime Minister Fumio Kishida sets out a policy plan for his upcoming term. 
Another story comes to us from the Middle East as Saudi Arabia officially breaks relations with Lebanon. Okay, great. Let's start with what happened in Japan. So the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced his policy plan on Monday. Among his plans are to release a strong COVID-19 stimulus package, spend at least 2% of the national GDP on advanced defense technology to deter Chinese advances on the Sea of Japan, and retain nuclear energy in the plan to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. In his first month in power, Kishida has created the Ministry for Economic Security and passed legislation protecting foreign acquisitions of key Japanese industries, moves mostly seen as targeting China. Mm, Okay. And then what's going on in Saudi Arabia? So Saudi Arabia has expelled the Lebanese ambassador after some 2018 remarks by the now Minister of Information, George Kordahi, have surfaced. Kordahi, which at the time was a television host, called the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, the Arab Man of the Year. Other strains on the Lebanese-Saudi relation appeared in April, as Saudi Arabia banned agricultural imports from Lebanon after 600 million pills of Captagon were seized by the Saudi custom officials over six years. In a television interview, the Saudi foreign minister, Prince Faisal bin Farhan, expressed frustration with the Lebanese authorities over incapability of managing Hezbollah and Iranian proxy forces, as well as the drug trade, among other things. The Gulf states import 55% of Lebanese fruit and vegetable exports, making Beirut heavily dependent on trade with the Saudis. Okay, Christopher, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. And that is all we have time for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jarrett Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Joaquin Maximus, and technical producer Chimdi Chukwukere. And, of course, your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.